Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode of the Jack Eason Podcast. We are talking about the issues of loneliness, isolation, and how to overcome them with true friendship and community. For more information on these and other issues, check out Jack's website at jackeason.org. Now here's Jack. Hey guys, I am uh, privileged today to have a very special guest with us uh, on this podcast. We've been talking about loneliness the last several, uh, well, several weeks, several months. And uh, Varun Sony, who is uh, the Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California, is on the line. And uh, greetings, my friend. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, we are so glad that you uh, that you did. And, um, you know, we've been talking about this issue of loneliness when I was... Uh, doing a little bit of research for uh, for this uh, book that'll come out um, uh, sometime here in the future, hopefully, if I get it all done. I, I came across a lot of articles that you had written, one most, uh, most recently, actually just a few weeks ago, uh, in the LA Times um, about what you're seeing happen there on the campus at USC uh, among a group that most people would not expect to be lonely, which is college students. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing there on the campus. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. So as Dean of Religious Life at USC, I'm essentially the chaplain for the university. So over the last 11 years, I've overseen all the other chaplains on our campus. And I do a lot of work individually with students in the context of pastoral care, spiritual counseling, the sort of confidential work. And what I've noticed in the that sort of context in my conversation with students is this change in the kinds of conversations we've been having. When I first got to the job in 2008, those were the millennials, um, there was a lot, We, you know, students would come to me to talk about how do I live an extraordinary life? How do I live a life of meaning and purpose? They were filled with a sense of optimism and hope for the future, and they wanted to sort of translate their dreams into action. Hmm. But over the last five or six years, I noticed a different conversation was occurring, uh, and it in some ways aligned with the millennials leaving college and the post-millennials, the next generation, the Generation Z, uh, sort of coming to college. And um, those conversations weren't about how do I live a, a life if they were why should I live at all. There wow. were conversations about meaninglessness. There were conversations about despair, anxiety, hopelessness. And what I began to realize is that what I was seeing at USC was a national trend. Um, we know that we have a mental health crisis now for college and university students. We know that one-third of college and university students are wrestling with some sort of mental health challenge. More than 60% of them say they feel overwhelmed, uh, anxious, uh, in a way that makes their work very difficult. Uh, 10% of college students are struggling with suicidal ideation. So these numbers seem to get worse every year, and the crisis seems to get bigger. What I saw in my role, sort of from a spiritual perspective, is a spiritual crisis that was underlying a lot of this, uh, and that is this crisis of loneliness. Uh, my first five years in my job, I never got the question that I get almost every day now from students, and that question is, how do I make friends? Mm. So a campus of 50,000 students, and students are asking me how to make friends. Wow. And I think it's partly because this is the first generation that was born and raised in a social media environment. They're digital natives. They didn't migrate to a technology they were raised with this technology. The first generation in human history to sort of communicate and think about community, which are the very essence of what it means to be human, in dramatically different ways, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so we're starting to see that in the age of connection, a lot of people who are raised in this world actually feel disconnected. Um, and I think there are other factors here, too. I think it's too easy to just say it's social media. There are a lot of different trends that are, I think, converging. 
But I do see a generation that seems to be lonelier than previous generations. Yeah. And what the what the research studies tell us now is that uh, the loneliest generation now is not the eldest. We often think of loneliness as something that is a challenge for elderly people. We know that loneliness can have a negative physical health consequence, that if you're extremely lonely, it can be like the equivalent of smoking uh, a pack of cigarettes a day. Mm, yeah. uh, we know that it can be a predictor of, uh, of premature death uh, in an elderly population. But for the first time, the youngest, the loneliest generation in the United States right now are the youngest and specifically those between 18 and 22, which were the essentially the ages of college students. Yeah. And you, now you've been so, there for uh, a, a little over a decade, right? So this yeah, is, this is something you've, you've, you've experienced. This is not just over the last year you've seen this. This is a growing thing you've seen there on the, on the campus there at USC. Yeah. It's, and it's not just me. At first I thought, hey, maybe it's me. Maybe it's that I've been on campus long enough that students know where to find me, right? And students are seeing me in a different way. But when I talk to counselors and chaplains and others across the country who work at colleges and universities, they all tell me the same thing. Mm. Now, you you mentioned social media, which, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I've seen point to that as probably one uh, indicator, one variable that's kind of created this this issue of loneliness. What what are some other things that you, you think? I know one of the things that I was seeing was, uh, you know, it talked about, and maybe this is a result of technology too, the, the breakdown of the of the family. You know, when I grew up, uh, I remember my grandparents used to have the big wraparound porch on the house, no no uh, no telephone, but they had the wraparound porch, and the neighbors would come over and congregate and sit and talk and have conversation. Nowadays, most of us, uh, you know, we pull into the uh, match the garage door button, we pull into our garage, and the garage door button, you know, we hit it again, the door goes down, and we don't communicate even with our neighbors. Is is it? Is it uh, the breakdown of the family and the neighborhoods playing into this, I think too? That's, that's certainly part of it. So interestingly, I spent yesterday with a professor of our school of social work who's had a 40-year private practice on the west side of Los Angeles with young adults. And he said that this generation is the loneliest, most disconnected that he's seen. He wrote a book about it called Belonging. And so I asked him, I have a five-year-old daughter, I asked him, what should I do when I raise my, now that I'm raising my daughter to make sure that when she grows up, she feels you know, pro-social, she has emotional intelligence, she has enduring and loving relationships in the real world, not just online. And he said there's two, the two most important factors, he said. The first, he said, is what you're saying, that there has to be significant parent time at, uh, at an early age. We mm -hmm. know that so much of our cognitive, social, emotional development happens before we're five. Um, and we know an investment in early sort of relationship building will pay dividends over one's life. He said even with parents who... Uh, are sort of two-parent households, even affluent families, there's still not the same kind of in intimate parent-to-kid time that's not sort of mediated by technology, where people are actually present with each other, mm. uh, that is uh, sort of disrupting this generation. And the second thing he said is a sense of, of volunteerism or service orientation, wow, that yeah. there has to be a we and not a me. He thinks that in the, his practice, so many of his clients are just struggling with this there's nothing beyond me. There's no, you know, they don't believe in community or God or the government or they have nothing to look forward to. There's no forward orientation. There's so having the sense of we is a powerful protective factor as well. So, yeah, I think those two things are important. Uh, I also see the loss of religion as a contributing factor. Mm. Uh, probably half of my students next year will first year students will not be formally affiliated with religion compared to 20% of the American public as a whole. So uh, young people are increasingly disaffiliating from religion, 
And religion and religious community has historically been a place where people get ethical frameworks, community, mm. relationships, a sense of belonging, a tribal identity. Uh, so I tell students, if you want to, want to walk away from God or from your faith, that's fine. But don't walk away from meaning or purpose or ritual or gratitude or joy. Those are things that make you human. Yes. Uh, and I don't know if we've done a good enough job providing secular alternatives to what religion has historically done very well. Yeah. So I think we're in a transition period, but that I think is a factor. I think that students grow up in an environment where they're active shooters on a, on a mm. campus almost every week. Yes. Right. Yes. So now they view college campuses or university campuses, not as these sanctuaries of learning and transformation and growth like I did, but often as places of bigotry and potentially violence. Mm. Uh, they have PTSD sometimes just by being on campus because they've spent their whole life in active shooter drills, right? right? right, right. Uh, in a way that we haven't. So that's an affiliation that they have that we don't. So I think there's like a convergence of factors. Plus, these were ki kids who saw their parents lose half of their wealth uh, during the 2008 financial crisis. So right. they are distrustful, not just of religious institutions, but political and financial institutions as well. And so... You know, there's been a complete breakdown of trust in there's uh, less space to think about community and meaning making. Right. Mm, and at the mm. same time, they're at, a, they're at a university now. They cost seventy five thousand dollars a year. So then they're really stressed about making sure they study the right thing to get the right job to pay down the debt. You know, I, I could study religion and not worry about it. But our students at this price point don't feel like they have that luxury. You know, it's it's so interesting. There's a lot of factors. There's the, a lot of factors. There that are unique. There are, but you're, you're uh, man, you're hitting on so many of the things I've thought about. So it's it's encouraging, especially what you just said uh, about trust. Um, you know, I was reading an article the other week, and this will be part of the uh, the book that comes out uh, about the uh, the guys that co-founded Airbnb, um, which is now you know the largest hospitality uh, entity on the planet. Um, and, and for people to stay in other people's homes, you know, if, if when they first went online with this whole idea, you know, kind of like Uber and Amazon and all these things that we now just do it every day and don't even think about. And they talked about this huge hurdle of trust that they had to uh, overcome. And one of the one of the things I thought was very interesting, they said they didn't want to build a, a marketplace that was built on money to do that would just have been. Um, uh, tran it would have been transactional, which would have been about yeah. the money. But what they said they want to do was make it uh, inter interaction, which was about relationship. And so I thought, you know, that is so important, the whole trust thing, because I think that does play into plays into what you just mentioned about religion. It plays into our view on politics, on our country, on our campus, on friendships, a place to belong. Can I trust this friend with sharing my, you know, personal uh, things that are a, a part of who I am? Uh, it's hard to have friendships without and build relationships without trust. So um, that is so. You, know, you guys are doing something on campus. I, th I think, if I remember correctly, um, reading this with um, like a training app that you yeah. That so we, we, that we have a, we a lot. What a lot of universities have started to do uh, in order to sort of uh, address the mental health challenges on campus is. Um, create these mindfulness programs, essentially. So mindfulness meditation, when I was in college, was very much a Buddhist spiritual practice. Now there's been enough research, data, evidence that it's become a secular sort of scientific intervention for issues that impact our community. Uh, so we have a pretty significant uh, mindfulness program. We present it as a secular sort of opportunity to 
develop certain practices that can help you with, you know, insomnia or um, uh, workplace happiness or, you know, substance recovery, et cetera, et cetera, um, or just anxiety and stress, uh, which, you know, everyone on the university campus struggles with in some way or another. Uh, so we have an app. The app is really popular, but even more so are the classes. And the classes, in some ways, give our community has the permission to turn off their phones for an hour mm. and just sit mm. with each other and just con- sort of be contemplative and to enjoy the stillness, right? And so I've been surprised how quickly this initiative has picked up. Uh, we've only been running it for four or five years, and we're training 7,000 people a year in mindfulness practices now. And you guys, uh, now was this under under your um, direction yeah. or leadership? Okay. Yeah. So when I was in college, I spent some time living in a Buddhist monastery in India. And that's I met the Dalai Lama during that time. And I sort of became a follower of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And that fundamentally shaped the trajectory of my life. And so when I was thinking about what can I do to help my college students, I began to realize, hey, what I did was I meditated because I had this experience in the monastery. And now, 20 years later, I don't have to roll it out as something that's spiritual, but I can roll it out as something that's helpful for everyone. Mm, And so I I really was able to draw upon my own experiences and sort of met the right people on campus who also shared those interests and values. And we just kind of built it on faith. And what was so interesting was that we didn't have to prove it. We just had to offer it. And even even when we offered it, we couldn't keep up with the demand. Because American consciousness over the last 20 years has evolved significantly in terms of yoga and meditation and other kinds of things that might have been considered, you know, culty 20 right. or 30 years ago. Now it's become so mainstream that mm. we don't we don't get any pushback on mindfulness. All we get is why aren't you doing more? Right, you know? right. And it, and this was, uh, I guess, alongside your your idea and backing here. Uh, I think I read where you guys called uh, this person that's kind of heads this up or helps with it, the director of belonging. Yeah. So we have. <laughs> cool. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. I just we just decided to sort of name it. Right. Uh, what we think is part of this loneliness epidemic is th- this uh, underlying belief students have that they don't belong that everyone belongs but them, that they see everyone's curated, idealized life on Instagram and they compare it to their real life, that everyone deserves to be here but them, that they're an imposter in some way. And um, and sort of underlying that is a lack of belonging or a tribe or a group or a community. They mm. feel like everyone belongs except them, but everyone feels that way. And so we brought in someone who we're piloting it now the idea is that we have now a director of belonging and she teaches classes on friendship building on sort of interpersonal uh, relationship uh, uh, sort of engagement and meaning making. Um, uh, She's running a student group that's also focused on the idea of loneliness on campus. And so students are taking leadership roles. Um, It's interesting when, when she did the group on friendship, I thought it would be, a lot of students who felt lonely, uh, there were those students, but there were also students who wanted to be leaders for other students, mm. students who wanted to be connectors, students who were very proactive. So I think even though this generation is struggling with these challenges, they're self-aware to sort of address those challenges, too. They're part of the solution. Not, you know. Well, it's a great um you know, a, a great idea, and you are kind of leading the way uh, there with some of the things that you're doing. I, I know also I was doing some reading that I guess it's been a little over a year ago now that um, uh, Prime Minister uh, Theresa May 
um, you know, created the country's first uh, minister for loneliness, uh, you know, that they're calling it um, there in the U.K. So, um, you know, there's obviously a need. This is not even limited to the United States. It's not limited to an age group or a specific geographical place on the planet. It's it's seemingly yep, it's worldwide true. that it's affecting people with this issue of loneliness. So um, thank you yeah, for what you're yeah. doing to help make a difference there thank on the you. campus. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. We've been talking to Dean uh, Varun Sony, who is the Dean of Religious Life. <laughs> and, uh, man, thank you so much for your time today Thanks, and for Zach. sharing some of your knowledge with us. Appreciate you. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Jack Eason Podcast. Be sure to check out the website for blogs, videos, and more help on the issues of loneliness, friendship, and community. To get updates on the release of Jack's new book from Ravel Publishing, sign up for an email alert at jackeason.org.